Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas on Redefining Development. Growth, perhaps, is the second greatest mystery. Uh, the greatest mystery is the mystery of the cessation of growth. You know, um, that a thing can grow at all is wonderful, but that it knows when to stop, <laughs> that is even more wonderful. Dr. E.F. Schumacher, speaking on ideas in 1975. Two years before, he had published Small is Beautiful, the book that made his name and put his philosophy before a wide public. In his book, Schumacher argued that scale is a critical consideration in development, that all tools and institutions have their appropriate scale and turn destructive when they exceed it. What the world needed, he claimed, were the simple, non-violent technologies which he called intermediate technologies, technologies that could fit into their social circumstances without destroying them. Today, the legacy of E.F. Schumacher is expressed in the work of the American Schumacher Society. Located in the Berkshires of Western Massachusetts, the Society has tried to devise the economic institutions that would allow Schumacher's dream of a renaissance at the small scale to be realized. Institutions like community land trusts. The basic idea behind the land trust is to return to the community the value which is created by the community. Land appreciates in value not because of, generally not because of what individuals do for the land. They might improve it some, surely. You know, they may uh, improve the soil. Uh, they may uh, add buildings and so on, and those are definite improvements. But the land itself, the basic land, appreciates in value, not because of what they do, but because the community itself becomes a valuable place to live because of other people that are there. So the, the land trust idea is to return to the community the value which is created by the community. Tonight on Ideas, we profile the work of the Schumacher Society in the fourth and final program of our series on redefining development. The series is written and presented by David Cayley. In 1939, a young Austrian refugee called Leopold Kor addressed an audience at the University of Toronto on the subject of social size. He argued against a popular book of the time called Union Now, which proposed that a lasting peace could only come about through political unification. Kor claimed that the salvation of the world lay not in uniting the nations, but in dismembering them. The chief evil of the age for Kor was paralyzing bigness, a cancerous overgrowth which dwarfed the human scale, drowned the individual voice, and annihilated local character. More than 30 years before the Club of Rome, he entitled one of his early articles, The Limits to Growth. Later, he summarized his approach in a book called The Breakdown of Nations. Leopold Kor was the first contemporary thinker to recognize the close link between form and size. The biologist J.B.S. Haldane, in a wonderful essay called On Being the Right Size, had drawn attention to the narrow range of sizes within which a given form can exist, a horse can only be a horse at a certain scale. Core applied the same argument to society. Beyond a certain size, he argued, societies will atomize and disintegrate. 
Only in small, bounded, and peculiar places can we really be human. Kors' ideas made a deep impression on E.F. Schumacher when Schumacher encountered them in the 1960s. And through Schumacher's Small is Beautiful, they eventually gained a much wider audience. Today, there are Schumacher societies in both Britain and the United States, which continue to develop these ideas. In tonight's program, you'll meet Susan Witt and Robert Swan of the American Society. Bob Swan has devoted his life to the same quest for an ethical economics which animated Schumacher's last years. It began, he told me, during World War II. I became a conscientious objector at a time when that wasn't so easy to do. World War II was a very popular war, and for good reasons, with uh, someone like Hitler. And, and yet I found myself unable to uh, go along and uh, shoot and kill people. I just could not do that. So um, the result of it was that um, I spent quite some time in jail. Jail's a great place to get an education if you, if you really take advantage of it. And uh, we had some good opportunities there because we had uh, a lot of um, men like myself that were also conscience objectors with a lot of background and interest and ideas of their own. So we had some excellent uh, discussions, seminars, and uh, so on in prison. It became a kind of a postgraduate course for me. And particularly uh, what was going on in the world with people like Gandhi in India. I became very interested in Gandhian ideas. So that, that was a major influence in my life. Um, and I think that ever since that, uh, I've been committed in a certain direction that hasn't changed uh, at all, really. One of the thinkers by whom Swan was most impressed was an American original called Ralph Borsodi. He became Swan's teacher and later his friend and collaborator. I would say Borsodi was the um, first uh, American decentralist of a very significant kind. He um, was an economist uh, by background and training, though he was pretty much self-taught, never went to college. I don't even think he went to high school. He was entirely a self-taught man. Uh, but he became a very influential advisor in Wall Street. He, he advised some of the largest corporations in Wall Street in the 20s. This is going back to the early 1920s. Mm -hmm. Until he became totally disillusioned with the whole Wall Street picture. Because he was basically a philosopher. And uh, realized that the values and so on were not the values he wanted to promote. And so he set up a small homestead on Long Island. He and his wife just bought a uh, couple of acres of land. And uh, he began to experiment with how you could live as, as self-sufficiently as possible, uh, with his wife baking bread, for example, and having a small garden to furnish all their own food and so on. He wasn't aiming at total self-sufficiency, but he wanted to see how far you could go and what the efficiency was relative to the mass production of the going concerns. And so he spent a lot of his uh, time developing these kind of small-scale uh, gadgets that might be workable. For instance, uh, inventing a small machine that would grind wheat in the house so you didn't have to go and buy the flour. You could buy the wheat and grind it yourself and make the bread, you know. Those kind of simple machinery and equipment that uh, later on uh, Schumacher picked up and uh, began to call appropriate technology or intermediate technology of 
small-scale small, small scale technology that could be worked at the home or nearby. Mm -hmm. That's the same kind of thing. So Barsotti was an early uh, inventor and, and a, an early promoter and philosopher of the idea of decentralization. Behind Borsodi stands the figure of Henry George, a 19th century American journalist and economist. His book, Progress and Poverty, sold millions of copies, perhaps the smallest beautiful of its day, and attained a wide influence. George was a friend of Borsodi's father, and Borsodi imbibed from him an idea which remains central to the Schumacher Society today. George put forth the idea that land should be taxed but not the improvements on them, to make it clear that it's the land where the real uh, value is created by the community. The community creates that value, not the individual. And uh, that injustice, the community deserves the appreciated value in land, not the individual. Uh, so there, therefore a tax should be put on land and not on the improvements. You don't want to penalize people for improving building houses, improving their, their, uh, their life, but the land is something different. Land was also a central preoccupation within the Gandhian movement in India, another contributor to the thought and practice of the Schumacher Society. Schumacher spent time in India with Gandhi's successors, so did Borsodi, and it was in the light of the Gandhian movement's experience that Bursodi began to imagine the institution that Bob Swan would eventually name a community land trust. After Gandhi's death in 1947, this is something a lot of people don't understand, a man by the name of Vinaba Bhave became the uh, recognized leader of the Gandhian movement. Gandhi had said himself that he thought that Bhave would be the, the leader uh, after his death. And uh, Bave uh, took on the problem in India of the uh, landless, the problem of uh, many, many millions of people in India who live in the villages but who own no land, who have no access to land, and at the mercy of the landowners and, and so on. So he began a uh, pilgrimage, walking from village to village, and talking to the people in the village, because he was so recognized as a saint in India, it was easy. All the villagers would gather around. And uh, he would say, I, my brother here has no land, but you may have some land. You, other people here, may have some land that you don't need so badly. Could you give my brother some land? And many people would stand up and say yes. Amazingly, I mean, it was uh, it was unheard of that anybody would give up land in India because land was the next thing to gold as in terms of value. But uh, over time, walking from village to village over a period of uh, several years, Vinaba actually accumulated several million acres of land. But then what happened was that um, the people who were assigned to this land, this land that was given, uh, found out that uh, the land was valuable, but they had nothing to work the land with. They didn't have the a plow or, a, or, or oxen or anything, you know, and, it, and just minimal things, minimal tools. 
And so uh, some of them then, because they had the title to the land, the ownership now, turned around and sold the land because that gave them a cash return, which they then took with them to Calcutta or somewhere else, and then gradually became beggars on the street after the money ran out. So Vinaba realized that there had to be a different way, and that's what was incorporated in what was called the Gramdan approach in India, which means village gift of land. In the Gramdan uh, program, instead of the individual being given a piece of land, as, as previously under what had been called the Budan uh, land gift approach, under the village gift approach, the village was given the land and the elders of the community that are already exist as a council, sort of, in India, were given the oversight of the land. And they would, they would uh, uh, give the right of use to individual landless uh, farmers, and they would try to help them to get that equipment and so on that they needed. Uh, but they didn't have the ownership. The, the farmers didn't have the ownership of the land. That was the difference. The ownership resided with the community, and they had the right of use. So it was like a community land trust. It was the same form, in effect, as a community land trust. The community land trust is an institution which builds on the heritage of both Henry George and the Gramdan movement. The term itself was coined by Bob Swan when he and Bersodi began a sort of American Gramdan movement in the 60s. A community land trust vests ultimate ownership of land in the community, while extending to those who live on the land most of the traditional prerogatives of owners, like long-term security of tenure, the right to make and benefit from improvements, and so on. Following George's distinction between the value a community gives its land by being a community and the value an individual gives it by his labor, the Community Land Trust creates a sort of socialist-capitalist hybrid in which the just claims of the individual and the just claims of the community are harmonized. The first American land trust was created near Albany, Georgia in the late 60s. The civil rights movement by then had accomplished its legislative aims, but rural blacks remained poor and landless. This was the issue Bersodi and Swan tackled in collaboration with Slater King, a cousin of Martin Luther King's. Slater had been re well recognized as uh, one of the strong leaders in the civil rights movement, but he was also a businessman. He was also a, uh, he was actually in, in real estate, that was his, his business. So he was in a position to know about land and where land could be uh, found and so on. And shortly after we began this uh, process, he was able to locate uh, tract of land, 5,000 acre former plantation, not far from Albany, that uh, could become and did become eventually the, the first community land trust in the United States. It was a, an expensive piece of land. It was uh, over a million dollars to buy the land. 5,000 acres is a lot of land. And uh, it was a, well, it was a uh, cliffhanger at the very end because we, the last 50,000 that we needed to make it possible didn't come in until two minutes after the deadline. After the deadline, not before, but after the deadline. And it was an interesting scene. I can describe it a little bit. The um, 
lawyers for the owners of the land uh, who didn't want to sell the land at that point because they saw that this was going to go into black hands and they were white. And uh, they hadn't realized it up until fairly recently. So they didn't want to sell the land. They were waiting, they were hoping that we wouldn't be able to get all the money. They were hoping that. And uh, so there was a $50,000 check that was due through, the, through a bank that was due to come in and it didn't come before the deadline. So the lawyers stood up and said, sorry, you know, we're leaving. Too bad, but you didn't make it. The lawyer that represented our side, who happened to be the brother of Slater King, said, I want to talk with you, the lawyer. They had a little huddle in the corner, and uh, when they were through the huddle, their lawyer said, we'll give you 20 minutes more. At that moment, the man from the bank walked in the door with a $50,000 check in his hand. <laughs> So everybody said, what did you say, you know, <laughs> what did you say to the liar? And uh, uh, isn't, I'm sorry, I can't remember his first name, but Mr. King, the liar, said, uh, well, I happen to know something about some things that he's involved in, and he had a, a conflict of interest in this, and I threatened to take him into court if he didn't give us some more time. <laughs> so that's the way we finally got the land. It was a cliffhanger, it really was a cliffhanger. But uh, that was the beginning, and uh, from there on has been a development process. The um, institute that we started called it be eventually became the Institute for Community Economics, then took on the role, I should say, of uh, um, technical assistance to groups. We wrote a book, the first book on the Community Land Trust back in 1972, and uh, that began to promote the idea around the country, and, and so we provided technical assistance in many, many different uh, areas of groups starting community land trusts. Today there are about 65 community land trusts in the country. And many others that are forming or don't call themselves community land trusts but are essentially doing the same thing. Did a farming community establish itself? Yes, it did. On that land yeah. in Georgia? Yes, and it is did. it still there? It's still there, yes. Yeah, it's still going. I haven't been in touch with them in the last few years, but they're still going, as I understand it, very well. At the same time that Bob Swan and Ralph Borsodi were building the Institute for Community Economics, a new magazine appeared in England called Resurgence. It presented the writings of Leopold Kor and E.F. Schumacher. Schumacher, in the 50s, had been a relatively orthodox Keynesian economist, but his faith in conventional development economics had been badly shaken by a trip to Burma. He said that... Uh when he was invited to go to Burma, he thought he'd better do some homework and find out what the, uh, you know, the in income and so on was in Burma. And he discovered it was $60 a year. And he said, I thought, my God, this will be the worst, the most uh, poverty-stricken place I can imagine. You know, it must be a terrible place to be. So uh, he went to Burma, and uh, when he got there, he was amazed because he found that people were very happy, happier than they were in England, he said. And he said, I, I was really baffled. What is going on here? 
and uh, gradually began to eat in, in, at him, you know, and he realized that the ideas that he was about to give to the Burmese at that time, the conventional wisdom of uh, development, just weren't, weren't appropriate. They, they wouldn't work. So he began to revise his whole thinking. Schumacher's reflections on his Asian experiences eventually informed one of his most beautiful and best-known essays called Buddhist Economics. This was one of the essays from Resurgence, eventually collected in Small is Beautiful. The book was published by Harper and Rowe in the early 70s, but gave no signs at first of its eventual popularity. It wasn't selling. Uh, I mean, typically, uh, book publishing companies don't put a lot of money into a book until they think it's going to really go. So I uh, wrote to Fritz and said, why don't you come over and we'll put you on a lecture tour and we'll promote the book and get the thing going, you know. So that's what happened in 1974. He came over and for his first trip to this country where he was lectured. And we had some wonderful help from a lot of people like Hazel Henderson and so on to help get, get his story into those places where it could really, you know, make some, some uh, impact. I got him on many radio programs and uh, lots of other uh, projects. So uh, that began to promote the book, and the book began to sell and became eventually the best-seller, uh, non-fiction seller that Harper's Row ever published. Schumacher became known principally as an exponent of what he called intermediate technology, affordable, appropriate, nonviolent tools which would enlarge a society's possibilities without undermining its social relations. Bob Swan's interests are complementary, but slightly different. He's interested less in the technology as such than in creating the kinds of economic institutions within which such a new technology would make sense. When he undertook the presidency of the Schumacher Society, he undertook to create these new institutions, like land trusts. The Community Land Trust is a nonprofit corporation which owns the land, holds the land, for no, without any possibility of any individual benefiting from that corporation. And it leases the land out to the individual families or individual persons according to the use value of that land. Now, when I say use value, I mean there's a difference between, say, housing as a use and farming as a use. If you're a farmer, you obviously can't pay as much uh, for land uh, as you can if you're a uh, builder of houses or, or a uh, seller of houses or whatever. You obviously can't. Uh, for instance, in this area here that, we're, that we live in, if you want to build a house here, you will pay $30,000 or more per acre uh, for for a building lot, for a place that's, that's suitable for a building. But if you're a farmer, uh, if you pay more than $500 an acre for farming, uh, you probably go broke because you can't afford it. You just can't afford it. So there's a vast difference in uh, value of land for one use as against another use, with commercial land being always the highest value, you know or being in an urban area, always the highest value. So the Community Land Trust is an effort to capture that value uh, that's created by the community and bring it back to the community, rather than the individual reaping the value of that. 
Land trusts are only one of the institutions which Swan believes will be necessary to support just and prosperous local economies. The Society has also established a credit fund which makes low-interest loans available in the region and built affordable housing. The next phase, according to Bob Swan's colleague Susan Witt, is thinking about a regional currency, thinking which has been stimulated and encouraged by the pioneering work of Toronto's Jane Jacobs. She was a speaker for us at the Schumacher Society lectures and did a wonderful talk about regional planning and regional growth and, and developing fully each region rather than creating these elephantine cities, as she calls them. She would rather see regions, each region, develop fully in, in a variety of ways on its own and has done a lot of thinking about how this can happen. Her book, Cities and the Wealth of Nations, addresses this issue. But in the question and answer period, she gave her talk just before her book came out, so we didn't have the advantage of reading her book before the talk. And in the question and answer period, she said, of course, I don't think any of this can happen uh, without the development of regional currencies. Well, I did think I'd have to pick Bob Swan off the floor, and, and afterwards he, he said, now, Jane, how did you come up with this? And she said, well, it's just reasonable and rational. And she said, when I first realized the necessity for it, I was a bit frightened because I didn't see how it could be done. I didn't understand how it could be done. And Bob said, well, let us tell you about our Berkshire program that we've been thinking about. And um, so it started a, a mutual collaboration and, and um, interest and love affair between the Schumacher Society and, and Jane. Regions have different needs uh, for money that uh, are not taken into consideration by our centralized system of banking that we have today. Uh, a centralized system takes a look at the nation as a whole and says, ah, well, we'd better uh, issue more money. That is, we'd better, through the Federal Reserve System or whatever the central system is, uh, we will put some more money out because it looks like the economy needs more money. It's, it's, uh, it's going down a little bit. We'd better feed it some more money. But it, it may not be true that the economy in this particular region, of this particular region, needs more money, it might not need more money at all. Whereas over here, there may be a great need for money. So as Jane Jacobs is pointing out, there is no way of controlling where that money goes from the national level. It just goes out into the economy as a whole and uh, does not work within the necessities of the region. So uh, what we want to do is create regional currencies that only work within those regions. So the currency can be expanded or contracted according to the needs of the region. And uh, to do that, uh, we've begun some experiments, and that's all I could call them right now is experiments. And the first one we've, we've initiated is uh, having a couple of local farmers who have um, farm stands where they sell their own produce sell at this point gift certificate of what amounts to like a gift certificate or a certificate of, of um, indebtedness in which 
they sell for $9 a certificate which will buy $10 worth of produce at a later date when, when the produce comes in. Uh, they've been selling these since last uh, October, I believe. And uh, the gifts will be redeemable. That is, the, the certificates will be redeemable for produce uh, next uh, July, August, September, when the harvest begins to come in. Now, from the farmer's point of view, uh, this is simply a loan. It's a, a simple way of getting your customers to lend you money. Right? Uh, and you're paying back in produce which is much easier for a farmer to do than to pay back in cash. So from the farmer's point of view, it's, it's a very good way of helping to tide him through the winter and provide an income uh, or provide the, the necessary cash that he needs to survive over the winter. Because most farmers' income goes up and down. In the summer it's high, in the winter it's down. And this way he can, he can uh, provide that. And that's from the standpoint of the farmers. From our standpoint, from where we're looking at it, we see it as the beginning of a process whereby a currency could be created that would circulate locally. Now that will only happen if this, these notes that, that the farmers are issuing actually do begin to circulate in the local area. So we've been encouraging local merchants and businessmen and so on to accept them in trade, just as they would dollars. And the more we can get that idea across that these, after all, everybody needs food and uh, there's no reason why you couldn't uh, accept this and go get your food with it because many, many people deal with these farmers. They're the only two large farm stands in the area. They're the largest farm stands in, in, in our whole Great Barrington region. So they service an awful lot of people with local produce. And this way uh, they will... Uh, be able to provide better services for their customers that farmers feel, and the customers will be receiving real value for uh, for their money. And uh, that way, if we can get it circulating around, we will begin the process of initiating local circulation of currency. So in effect, the farmer is issuing money, which is backed by vegetables. Yeah, basically that's right what it is. That's really what it is, exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, he's getting dollars because he needs dollars right now. But in the long term, if he wouldn't even need dollars, he might be able to deal entirely with uh, local currency at some point in the future, that is, you know. The other thing that's important about this is that this currency will only circulate locally. It's not going to get out of the local region. When, when people bank their money today, I mean, if you put your money into the bank, a, a commercial bank primarily, what does it do with the money you put in the bank? Well, it, it usually buys um, bonds in Wall Street, or it buys CDs someplace. It, it goes out of the community. So your money goes out of the community. It doesn't stay there. It doesn't work within the community. As, as any economist knows, there's two factors in the uh, value of money. One is the face value that it has when you present it at the store. But the other is the number of times that it changes hands, what's called a velocity in, in economic terms. The more times that money changes hands within a given area, the more work it's doing and the more valuable it is because it's, it's helping everybody that much more, you see. 
an example of that is a little town called Wurgel in Germany. Going back to the Depression period of 1920s, uh, I'm sorry, of 1930s, this little town, like every town in the country, was uh, flat on its face. I mean, 25% unemployment or more. Nothing happening. The town was flat. So what they did was to, um, the mayor of the town, decided to issue the cur their own currency, which was good for paying taxes and, and, and other things. So they began issuing currency in the town. And uh, the, way they in, the way they helped to increase the velocity or the circulation of it was, was to attach a tax to the currency. Every month, you had to put a stamp on the back of the, of the currency that you bought for two, two cents. It was, in effect, a 2% tax per month. That stamp had to be on there, and if you went to the store, you couldn't use it unless the stamp was on there. And what this had the effect of doing was to step up the velocity, the uh, number of times it circulated in the community. They actually made a, a test of it and discovered that compared with other national currencies, which they had been dealing with, shillings at that time, the local currency was circulating three times as much locally, three times the velocity, in other words, which meant, in effect, it was doing three times as much work and therefore was three times as valuable. So there's another very important reason for local currency because it will continue to stimulate local business and local development. Bob Swan's experience with local currencies goes back to 1972 when he participated in an experiment designed by Ralph Borsodi in Exeter, New Hampshire. Borsodi was already in his 90s at the time and interested more in proving a point than in actually establishing a permanent currency. So he put into circulation for a short period a local dollar which he called a constant, Susan Witt. Ralph had a participation from the beginning from a local bank in Exeter. The actual place where you went to trade your constants was at the corner bank. And the uh, merchants gladly used it. In New England, there are such individualists there. And the idea of freeing yourself from the federal government in any form whatsoever is greatly loved and enjoyed. So the merchants took it on. In our own town in, in Great Barrington, the merchants have been interested in the proposal of a local currency because they see it as a, as a trade dollar that uh, would just bring publicity and attention to their shops. Also, the, the merchants in Exeter knew that if someone had constants in their pockets, they couldn't uh, shop through Sears Catalog. In a rural area, there's a lot of catalog shopping. They would have to come downtown to Exeter. And uh, in fact, that's exactly what it did when newspapers came and said, but isn't this illegal, Mr. Borsodi? He said, well, just ask the government yourself. Ask, call the U.S. Treasury and ask yourself. And the reporters would call and they would say, we don't care if he's issuing acorns up there as long as the, there's an exchange rate with the U.S. dollar so that 
presumably the um, transactions can be taxed, recorded in tax. I happened to be a student at the time at the University of New Hampshire. I had no interest in economics. I was a literature major. But the rumor went around that something was going on in Exeter and that those shops that had the constant were the good shops. They were for the people and for new, new ideas. And we would actually travel from Durham where we could have gotten the products that we needed fine just to go to Exeter and use this new currency because it seemed such an unusual thing that the people could make their own money. It was a powerful, powerful image. Tremendous uh, visual power, the, the idea of an independent currency. It's just a statement of our uh, being able to do it for ourselves. Local currencies have a long history. The single standard federal dollar hasn't always had its present monopoly. So when the Schumacher Society started planning a new currency, Susan Witt began to hear stories about other successful experiences with local currencies in her region. Back in the 30s when the banks collapsed, the publisher of the Springfield Papers at that time issued a note to pay uh, his employees. The name of the publisher was Samuel Bowles. He was working with a Springfield Union leader. And he paid his employees in a script that was redeemable at the stores that advertised in the papers. So the idea was that the employees could at least go out there and purchase goods. However, this man told us what actually happened was that other people would come into the store, the storekeepers would have Bowles's money in the drawer, and would say, do you want the federal dollars or do you want Bowles's currency? And the customer would say, well, I see Bowles every day. I have more confidence in him. Give me Bowles's money any day. And so, in fact, that issue of currency, that issue of script by Bowles that for the paper kept circulation of trade going even with the banks closed. Today the Schumacher Society is working towards launching a new currency. There's already a name, the Berkshire, and a plan for establishing and backing the new currency's value. The standard would be tied to cordwood Cordwood is a product that if you as an individual aren't using in the Berkshires, your aunt uses or your sister-in-law uses. And if, if you haven't actually been out there and cut down a cord of wood and stacked it, you've probably at least moved a cord of wood from one spot to another when you've been at a friend's house. So it's known in the body what is the worth of a cord of wood. It's in the psyche of the area. Wendell Berry said, oh yes, I understand. In Kentucky, it'd be based on chickens. <laughs> Actually, there's very little need for redemption. Just as when the federal government, in fact, had gold as a backing. 
there was very little need for redemption. And in fact, um, the government always even used a fractional reserve. Not many people actually want to come in and claim their cordwood. It's rather a, a measure. And as wood is an energy, we assume that energy prices will go up. So as the federal dollar, the federal funny money devalues, the value of the cordwood note will remain constant in its buying power. So it will be seen to go up in value in comparison to the federal dollar, which would go down in value. So we hope that it would be the currency of preference in the long run. All the initiatives of the Schumacher Society converge on the goal of regional development. The Society sees its work, Bob Swan says, in the context of its own bioregion, meaning by bioregion an area defined by its natural rather than its political boundaries. We fit into, we think of ourselves at any rate, as a bioregional organization, a bioregional group which means uh, in our area, for instance, that uh, uh, the Housatonic River defines the central artery. It's like the backbone of our region. And on both sides of the Housatonic, you have the Berkshire Mountains on the east side. On the west side, you have the Taconic Mountains. And they flow north and south. The river flows north and south, and the mountains run north and south. So that they go into Connecticut, but we don't see ourselves as, because there's a political boundary called Connecticut, we don't see that stopping the region. The region is quite independent of any political boundaries, and so true in the north in the same way. Though in the north, we think of ourselves as being somewhat bounded by the turnpike, which tends to force, it tends to act as a divide of, of a certain kind that... Uh, it's a, it's, it's a natural one, even though it's a man-made. Quasi-natural feature, right, yeah. And uh, then south into the Connecticut area, down to maybe Kent or somewhere in that area, where, uh, the, again, the terrain begins to change. You have a different kind of, uh, of region developing. So it's, it's that, broad, that rather long region. That's what we think of that. What it means is that in terms of, let's say, membership in the uh, land trust, if... Um, Someone from uh, Albany, New York, which is out of our region, wants to uh, join the land trust or maybe wants to even give us some land and, and uh, have us use that for land trust. We say, no, that's out of our region. We want you to develop that there in that region, and we encourage you to do so. So we will provide uh, assistance. We will provide technical assistance or... Uh, you know, whatever we can do to help them get something started there, but let them define their region then as a separate region. So that's, uh, you know, those are the, the kind of uh, restrictions that we, we tend to operate on. Right. 
in, in a general way, a 50-mile radius uh, is all we can handle. Insisting on the regional scale allows Bob Swan to harmonize a feeling for nature with a lifelong passion for economic justice. At the national scale, the demands of economic justice and environmental protection are usually in conflict. At the local scale, with the right economic institutions, they need not be. The change of scale and the change of institutions, Susan Witt believes, offers a way beyond the paralyzing contradictions of a society based on mass markets. It's a practical approach to living more gently on the land in the community. Instead of saying no to things, which is a major part of the environmental movement, I think, right now, a lot of energy is spent saying, no, don't do that. Let's stop that. We're saying yes to a different type of development and showing how it can occur and um, how a community can help that occur. So instead of saying no, we're saying yes. We're putting in energy into a new approach of working and living and creating economic development on the land rather than just saying no more development at all. What Schumacher always called for was local production for local consumption. That's how you're going to reduce the dependence on fossil fuels, on large-scale eating up of the environment. But in order to achieve that vision, you've got to work in your own region. It's going to be regional development. It's what Jane Jacobs calls for. So in order to work on the solution, rather than just living in the schizophrenia of, no, 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 don't do any more there, <laughs> but let me have my car and the second car and third car, <laughs> there needs to be a positive solution and approach to solving some of our real social problems at the local level in a way that works within the environment with that environment of that area. And that we're trying to take those steps. If people are exploited, uh, land will be exploited. If, if a farmer, for instance, is loaded down with a mortgage on land, which requires him to meet payments because of the, the price of the land has gone up so high that in reality he can't really afford it, but he's trying to, as many, many farmers are, Thousands of farmers are struggling under the weight of borrowed money uh, to pay back the price of, of buying the land and therefore are only able to farm that land at the, at try, or try to at least maximize their income from the land. Now what does that mean? If you're going to maximize your income, it means you're going to do things which are bad for the land. You're going to over-farm it. You're going to restrict yourself more to corn and other kinds of crops which are the major cause of soil erosion, for example. It's just a, you know, it's just a known fact that that's what happens, that any kind of land which has been overpriced from to the farmer is going to be exploited. The farmer can't help him, so he's not, it's not because he wants to, 
He might, but he probably doesn't. He's got to do that in order to meet his mortgage payments. And that's, that's where all of this comes together because it's the interest on the money that in large part is causing his major trouble. So that's, I mean, this is where the two aspects of what we work with, where the land coming from the access to land and the need for land that everyone has, and at the same time, access to capital, access to the, the funds that are needed to make it work come together. Those two have to have, to have a marriage. There has to be low-cost money as well as low-cost land for a farmer to produce good good quality food not you know the best quality food and to not exploit the land those two have to come together and in our present institutional system that doesn't happen and it simply doesn't happen so there is a natural exploitation that takes place The question behind all this is, uh, what are we about? Are we mainly interested in building production or in building society? If we're mainly interested in building production, maybe we can get more production by becoming more and more highly specialized and, uh, to use the agricultural term, going in for more and more monoculture so that uh, a huge province produces nothing but wheat. Well, if there's nothing but wheat production, life becomes very, very dull. And uh, it isn't a real society. It's really a sort of colonial status that you work on one thing for the benefit of the big town, not for the benefit of the community who are actually doing the work. Now, we have been building this system of production for the last 200 years, but the society is, uh, seems to become tottering more and more, incurring bigger and bigger risks of uh, a real breakdown, where we are no longer debating whether it's 5% more profitable or less profitable to do, to do this or that, but where we are debating now survival. Think of it. E.F. Schumacher speaking in 1975. His words conclude tonight's program, the fourth and last in our series on redefining development. Heard on tonight's program were Susan Witt and Bob Swan of the Schumacher Society in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. The series was written and presented by David Cayley. Technical production by Lon Tulk, production assistants Gail Brownell and Faye McPherson. A printed transcript of the series is available for $5 per program or $20 for the series. If you're ordering individual programs rather than the series, please tell us which program you want. Make your check or money order payable to Ideas Transcripts, Redefining Development. And mail it to us at Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6. And please allow six to eight weeks from the end of the series for delivery.
Tomorrow Night on Ideas, a program on the Swiss Army. On 48 hours' notice, the Swiss Army can muster 700,000 men. The Swiss have hidden 12,000 pieces of artillery in their mountains and wired their tunnels and bridges with explosives. Do they really think someone is going to attack? Find out tomorrow night on Ideas. That's the Swiss Army. And on Monday evening, Addicted to Addiction. Based on the model of Alcoholics Anonymous, more than a hundred programs exist to treat addictions, among them Debtors Anonymous, Overeaters Anonymous, and Love Addicts Anonymous. Are these groups a useful response to growing problems? Or have we become addicted to addiction itself? That's Monday evening on Ideas. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night. <laughs>